Our uh, pastor, if you're visiting with us, is on sabbatical, and my name is Rick Lowhorn. I'm the missions pastor. Um, before Scott left, he shared with us a little bit about what he's planning on preaching when he got back, and I asked him, I said, brother, are you going to have time to, you know, he's got a large family, got a lot of things going on, are you going to get some solitude, you know, some time just by yourself with God? That's a great Christian principle. It's hard to do today. <clears throat> so last Wednesday, by the way, I had got this great tan going fishing. I go fishing at night. I'm working on a house, building my daughter's house. Last Thursday, right before dark, I was fishing. Sunset, beautiful sunset on Del Hala, and I get a text from Scott. And it had a picture of the sunset I was looking at. And so he said, I found an island on Del Hollow. He said, I can't, I, I just can't imagine what's prevented me from finding this place. I tell you that because you should pray for him, you know, that he would have a great, that, listen, he's a relatively young guy when I think of him. Uh, he, um, he didn't want to go on sabbatical. He didn't have a need for a break. I mean, physically he's in great shape and, you know, he didn't have any depression going on or anything like that. But he needed to get away with God. And it's a great thing to know. And I sent him a text back, and I told him, I said, I, I, I'm up here also, but I hope and pray you have a great time of solitude. A couple of months ago, I was uh, having to think through a topic and uh, things that were going around in my life. And I was having to think through a topic that we don't, talk about much, and that was uh, this issue of words, um, words that we use, words that we say, the tongue. And so as I've been studying it, and the people on Wednesday night have probably got their full of me sharing all the things that God has shown me, um, God brought me to a place in the study of the words that we speak that I believe the things we say is the greatest testimony of the truth that we are truly born again. I think the words that come out of our mouth shout to others and to ourselves that we are Christian. Now, we Baptists have a lot of beliefs, and I'm not going to bore you with a whole lot of doctrine. But I want to share just a little bit of the foundational things that I believe most define us as Christians that go to a Baptist church. If these things, if we failed in these things, you would probably leave this church. The distinguishing beliefs that we have center around one question, and that is how can a person become a Christian? And what happens to them once they're saved? Now, there's a lot in that short statement, so I'm going to break it down just a little bit. We believe that we all, all people, are sinful by nature. It's not the things we do, but it's our literal heart. We are sinful. We can't change that. We believe this sinfulness fully separates us from God. We believe that God chose by His grace and mercy to send His Son Jesus Christ to live on this earth and to be
be a living sacrifice for our sinfulness, okay? We believe Jesus died on the cross, and on the third day he was resurrected. Resurrected as an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. We believe God applies this sacrifice as full payment for a person's sins, if you trust in what I just said. We believe God forgives that person for his sin and makes him a part of the family of God. Literally, the scripture says, a child of God. We believe that this change is an act of God and God alone. Key point, no one, not even we, who are changed and now child of God, no one can compromise that relationship with God. You're born again, Jesus said, changed. Now, there's different terms that's used to describe that, and there's some discussion because there's some differences in these terms, but you'll hear these kind of terms, perseverance of the saints, eternal security, and most of us just like to say, once saved, always saved. As I talk with people all around the world and here in the United States, the one thing that keeps coming up is this question. Am I truly saved? Am I really saved? Because we fail God in so many ways. This question has always been there ever since the very beginning of the church. James, uh, the book of James, which is where we're going to be, James is one of the first books of the New Testament that was written. And it's interesting, the topic, because it's not gospel-centered. It's centered on this truth. The things that are in your life will give uh, a picture of your heart to the world. The thing, and he defines specific, very specific things. But God is, is clear on this point. And he, he, not in James only, but in other places in the New Testament, he gives descriptions to describe the Christian that you can know God is clear on it. And we're going to be in James 3, and we're only going to focus really on one characteristic of the Christian true believer, and that's your tongue. So uh, we like to stand in the reading of God's Word. I'm not going to say you have to stand. I'm going to read a little bit of a long text. And if you don't stand, it doesn't mean you're lost and going to hell. Okay? That's not one of the tests. Uh, but we do like to stand in the honoring of reading God's Word. I'm going to start reading in chapter 3, the first verse, so you can follow along with me. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with, with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able all, also to bridle his own body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting a fire 
uh, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to this difficult thing, Lord, something we don't think about much, obviously. And we pray that it would be honoring to you, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The book of James. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be reading a lot. I told Amy this yesterday. I wrote every word of this, okay? <laughs> I don't usually do that. Here I go doing what I said I wasn't going to do. I wrote every word, so I'm going to be reading a lot because it's about the word we speak. And, and you'll see as we go through it, uh, really it teaches that we can control it. So I wanted to write down everything, so I'm going to be reading a lot of this. The book of James gives a, us a clear picture of the life of a person who truly believes in Christ. There are given, there are given, and we'll look at them briefly, things that give evidence that a person is a Christian. One evidence is our speech. The words we say, James makes it clear in this short epistle that the words from our mouth are maybe the most significant evidence of the changed heart. He refers to it not only here in the third chapter, but he speaks about it in the first, second, and the fourth chapter. I'll give you a question. Have you ever done or said something thinking you're doing or saying exactly what you should, but it turned out that you were wrong? Now, if you're sitting here and you say, no, I've never done that, then you need to reconsider your life. Because that's normal. That's a normal thing in our life. Could be maybe at work, school, could be with a friend at their house, could be out just playing. Are you raising children? If you're raising children, then you make all kinds of decisions based on the things you read, the things you hear, the things people tell you because you don't know what you're doing. There's no way that you can know what you're doing raising children because it's always new. Tomorrow's a new day. They're a little bit older. The questions and the challenges are totally different. Same thing with grandchildren. You never know what the right answer is, so you try to learn. You try to teach yourself. So you read all these things, but so often you just mess up. And our words fall way short of what they should be. I want to first look at how in this, and we'll see these tie together, deception plays a big role in why we fall short and why our words fall so short of where they should hit. When I do or say something and it does not, listen, when I do or say something it doesn't work out the way I think, the very first thing that I'm going to blame is not myself and not what I said or what I did, but the circumstances. I'm always going to do that. We measure things by circumstances. 
It wasn't the right time to do that. I, could, I should have not said it that way at that moment. The, they, were, they just weren't ready to receive it. They just don't understand what I'm saying. You know, they, it would have been bad enough if the circumstances were the reason you fell short. But a lot of times, we're just wrong. It's just wrong. There were no circumstances or timing that could have made it better. It's just wrong. Can't tell you, and I'm going to embarrass her here, I know that. Didn't in the first service because she wasn't here. Can't tell you how blessed I am to be married to Amelia Mays Lohorn. I, every, I, this is a daily practice, of, uh, every day. I say something about something that I'm going to do, okay? And she, maybe not at that moment, but she'll find a way sweetly to tell me, you might want to think about that. And uh, this may be a guy thing. In fact, I remember once uh, uh, here at the church, a guy came to me and apologized for something he said. I don't even, didn't even remember what it was. He said, I talked to my wife and she told me I ought to talk to you. Sometimes God gives us someone to help us when we're in this wrong state, thinking wrong about something, but often we will not listen. We're so hard-headed in this. We just continue to multiply the deception because we'll take what we know, which is wrong, and then we'll tell somebody else the same thing, and they'll think they're right. We especially do that with our children. Could be something we read or heard or, my goodness, the Internet and social media. It's full of just all kinds of teaching that's garbage. And we think, boy, they got to be right or they wouldn't be on the Internet. We're convinced that they're right. Even though we were deceived into thinking we were right, we do not know we're wrong until someone will tell us, and what a risk it is for that person to say anything to us about us being wrong. You're like that, and I am too, every one of us. At that point, even though we were wrong, the person who tells us they've got to take that risk because they love us. We are so slow and even maybe never respond with accepting we're wrong. It is a terrible thing to be deceived. Deceived to the point that we make decisions out of that deception. Decisions about life, about direction, about who we're friends with, about everything. Even to the point we'll take that deception to the grave and we'll die for that deception. Because we believe we're never wrong. <laughs> oh, the church surely is a safe place. You know... There's not any deception here. This is where the Word of God is and the people of God. I wish that was true. Surely that group of people cannot be deceived. But we see in the Bible that deception hit the church almost immediately when it was birthed. And that's why James was written. That's why God had to communicate these truths you know, that you think maybe that deception wouldn't be found here, but unfortunately, there's, I know there's disagreement, there's immaturity, we don't study, we don't pursue the truth, 
Because of this, you find many who are open to being misled by false teachings all over the place. And we have cults out of the church because they, people have believed wrong things. Some coming out of it or from people who were deceived themselves, and we may be the fourth generation of the deception. Much and maybe all, I think we could say all of this coming from the very heart of Satan, who is the great deceiver we see in 2 Corinthians 11. Listen, and, and I, I, this is, I'm the one that studied this and got convicted on it. So, you know, I'm teaching things that God has convicted me on. But you could be deceived right now sitting here. And you could be believing something wrong. What are you reading? What are you looking at on the web? Who do you put confidence in? What has caused division between you and another Christian or maybe between you and the church? What seems to continue to be an issue of conflict in your life? Are these kind of things normal? Never done it that way before. These statements. Who does he think he is? How could anyone vote for that person or not? I'm not getting political. It's just interesting the things we get so wrapped up in. It doesn't say that. If they could only listen to me, if they'd only listen, things would change. Do they know what they're doing? Satan is the master of deception. And he knows how to play words and play with us. Oh, these sound so good. They sound right. Just last week, someone came to me and gave me something and said, you know, is this something I should be reading? And I'm careful. Not, I'm not going to quickly jump on against something. I read a lot. And, but this was an ancient text. This was a first century text written by a Roman, okay? And this person I was talking to, I told him, I said, well, if you really want to read something for the first century, I'd probably recommend the Bible. You know, that, I can tell you it is the most, uh, it has the highest integrity, historically speaking, of anything written in the first century. And if you want to talk about that, I can show that to you. And oh, by the way, it is the Word of God. So why go and read that? But in that book, I showed him, it, it spoke of how a person can be happy. And if these type of virtues are in the life of the person, obviously they're going to be happy. Things like temp, good temperance, courage, justice. I mean, good words. Sounds really good. And that's what the deceiver does. He'll put things before you that will distract you from the truth. Wherever God's word comes, the deceiver comes with something to distract us from it, especially if you're going through a hard time. I hate to say that, but if you're going through a hard time, especially the distractor is going to be there. They're going, you know, uh, in the church at Corinth, they were going through a very difficult time, and Paul gave them a text. If you could, 2 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15, do you have that? Yeah, right here. Just look at the words here. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He, he told these believers, this is what's going to happen above you. His servants, they also make themselves look so good and righteous. God, so, all that said, God chooses 
to give us some clarity on this issue of salvation. But we got to look at it. Ways that we can know that we have received the truth. Ways to know that we have not been deceived relative to knowing him. John said, he said, these things I've written to you in 1 John, you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. We Baptists love that verse, but it's a true verse. It's another one of those texts that was written to give certainty of belief. So this brings us to James, how can I know? James was criticized, and I mentioned this earlier, criticized by people, uh, theologians, because it doesn't mention um, the gospel. In fact, Martin Luther was one that criticized James. Uh, but I like what D.L. Moody said. It's that first, ver uh, first point up there. The epistle of James sternly insists upon Christians' practice be consistent with their belief. He's saying, he's not saying your practice saves you, but he's saying it should be there as definition of who you are in Christ. Throughout the letter, we have these tests, and I'm going to go through these really quick. True faith will be tested faith. And, uh, and Amy and I, we've talked about that, and we said, wow, why did God do that? You know, I, And I know from my experience, God does it for one reason, for me to trust him. It, true, fa true faith is tested faith. True faith will result in no partiality. We don't, I mean, we don't really have that at all, maybe with age, but we don't have a test of partiality here. But you go down to Kiwan Foster's church, you have, you have that consideration down there, a very diverse community. But we don't think that way. If we're born again, we don't think that way. God loves everybody. True faith results in godly works in the life that has been changed by it. That should be, you know, thought. I mean, you're going to want to do things for God, and true faith will be demonstrated in the life of a person as they're moved by the wisdom of God. And you say, well, what that, what's that mean? That means, and this will happen to you, if you're truly born again, at times people are going to wonder why you do and say the things you do because it's just different. And they're struck by it. And God uses that to move people's heart. And then chapter 3 speaks of the tongue. And I'm just going to go through this quickly. How can I know as a result of my tongue what, um, that I'm born again? A person who is truly saved will resist those things that cause division in the church. Okay. The mouth speaks so many bad things. Paul said in uh, Romans 3, 11 through 14 that uh, the mouth uh, is an open grave. It's like a venom of asp under our lips. Um, the mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Folks, this started when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden. And it's always been that way. Think about it. When God came into the garden after they had been tempted and he said, where are you? They were hiding from God. And what was Adam? Adam's response was, well, Eve, Eve told me to do it. And uh, Eve said, well, Satan made me do it. Right off the bat, first thing, all they could say was this deception out of their mouth. And Adam and Eve demonstrated this, but boy, 
I mean, we know this because Paul says that things, a lot of people think, well, the world's getting better and better and better and better. That's not biblical. Paul said that evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I know in a, my short time here on this earth, wow, words that are coming out of the mouth of people today. I'm not talking about just adults, but college students, all the way down to preschoolers. They got words in their mouth that are, that are just rotten. And they don't even know why they're saying it. You know why they're saying it? Because they've heard it. They've received it from somebody. They don't know why. And then it becomes a part of them. And these, these words and the mess that things are in today demonstrates the truth that Paul said. Things are just going to get worse. Hearing words from others, they simply repeat them. Consider a few things. Like I said, we need to recognize the importance of our words. We need... We need to see, listen, look, I know some of you have pets. That's cool. I like dogs too. Uh, and I will talk to my dog if I had one like he's communicating with me, you know. But that dog's never going to say anything back to me. Even though you think, well, he said this or my cat said this. Animals don't talk. God spoke things into existence. He said let there be light. And after that, then God said, 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 right through all creation, God spoke things into existence. But God is not the only one that speaks. Scripture says that Satan speaks. He is the deceiver. And he looked at Adam and Eve and he said, did God really say that? See the deception did God really say that? You can't. He didn't say you can't eat from that tree. He contradicts, distorts, and twists God's words. He said to her, you will not surely die. You won't die. In fact, what's going to happen is you will be like God. The deception. Words are so important because not only can they be used for good, but they can be used in great kinds of evil. Jesus made it clear when our, he's, well, Jesus made it clear when our words come from when we say and we speak, they are simply an overflow from somewhere else, and that's our heart. As we have already discussed, we know our words can communicate wrong and be the cause of great destruction. James says, and uh, he says that the words are important and that they, we have great responsibility in the use of those words. And he uses it as an example. And a lot of people use this, I think, wrong when it says, you know, very few should be teachers. He's using this in context relative to words. And, and he says, few, not many, should teach. He's not saying we shouldn't teach, but you need to be careful when you teach, especially the Word of God. We see from this that just because of who we are, we normally misuse words that few of us should teach. If you desire to teach, you need to check your uh, thoughts on it and why you're doing that. We're naturally bent to abuse our words and communicate wrong and truth, but he's not saying don't teach. 
because he tells us in the Great Commission, teach all my words. He said, teach them to observe, to see the things that I've taught you. And he also says, rightly divide the word of truth. So he doesn't, he's not saying don't teach, but he's using teaching as a illustration of you have problems with your words. Always. Jesus said in Matthew, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless thing they do. That's not what he said. He says, you got to account for every careless word. Every careless word that you speak, you will be. We should also be challenged from the scripture that the central element of our teaching, we teach from everything in the world and we just ignore the scripture. This is what we should be teaching. I think James starts out with the seriousness of uh, of the word spoken by using teaching as an illustration uh, because of the seriousness of God's word and he's wanting to share even further relative to this speaking. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. All of us have this in us. He goes on to suggest that a perfect, and in the Greek word really it means mature Christian, and we, mis- we misunderstand this. He says, mature Christian might be able to not stumble, but if you continue reading the words, it tends to more suggest perfection and control of the whole person, and that's not possible. He's again saying, if you think you're perfect and you can speak all truth, you need to check yourself out because that's not possible. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he says he is a perfect man. And that's not possible. The potential of truly great for sinning in our words is all the time. He gives three illustrations in that that we read. And and pointing out the seriousness of this, your tongue is like a a rudder on a ship. Your tongue uh, is like a spark in the forest that can cause a huge fire. Your tongue is like a bridle in a horse's mouth. It has the potential of doing great damage. And you say, I can control my tongue. We all say, in fact, we're sitting here thinking that right now. I can control my tongue. And God's word says, even though we can tame all kinds of wild animals, no human being can tame the tongue. So if you're sitting here thinking that, you're disagreeing with God's word. With it, we bless our Lord, and with it we curse our brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) It's interesting. We do everything we shouldn't, and James says it should not be that way. You shouldn't be doing it. We must recognize that words are an indication of the condition of our heart. And something's not right. Given what James has said might leave us feeling bad about ourselves, even almost a little hopeless. This is important. Where God wants us, this is where God wants us because it's in our helplessness that we find hope. Here is where we see that considering our sin, we recognize God's provision. For the imperfect words we have spoken and the imperfect words we believe, God spoke in the beginning Satan speaks, but God spoke again in redemption. And God has the last word. 
He has revealed a word of gospel promise. All of us have been burned by broken promises, and we have burned other people with broken promises, but I can guarantee you, God's promises ain't going to be broken. They're never going to burn out all the noise and all the clutter we see and find God. A great example, quickly, in Isaiah 6, we have a man of God in a very bad time history-wise. A king has died. He is right before God's throne, the angelic beings all around. And what does he think of? He thinks of his nasty lips. He's just a sinner before a holy and righteous God. God sends an angel with a coal over, and the angel touches his lips and cleanses him. (laughs) And then God says, who will go for me? Prior to that, prior to him seeing his sin, he would have never said this. But after God touches him, he says, here I am, Lord. Send me. What can I take away? The way I live demonstrates to others and to myself that I'm a Christian. We so often don't even think about that, the impact of our life. The things I say are important in whatever the circumstance. Our words are important. My grandson asked me, he's 19, he said, Papa, what's a bad word? What's a bad word? And I know words that come to our thoughts that shouldn't, but we'd think they're bad words, and they are. But from the scripture, any word, any word can be bad if it doesn't communicate grace and it doesn't bless the people that we're communicating with. How often do words come out of our mouth and they're just useless and they damage people? I need to know Satan wants to deceive me. I should consider my life and be honest with myself. Where am I? God is faithful and responds to me seeing my sin. And just like I told you in Isaiah's circumstances, if we do, it changes our perspective of everything and we feel value to God. So where are you? How do you respond to that question? Do you know you are a Christian? I mean, that answer doesn't have, I mean, that question doesn't have many answers. Uh, and two of the answers you might give are wrong. God wants you to know how do the things you do and say communicate to you and others that you're saved? How do your words communicate to others? Maybe today you need to give up and stop trying to change yourself could be that you have struggled for years and you have so tried to please God through your actions, it won't work. It's only going to be by faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior that God will change you. And you will be born again. Also, you may have a nasty mouth. We all do. But you really may struggle with it, and you're trying to stop. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's impossible to tame it. It's time to give it up. Trust in Jesus. Just trust in him to change your tongue. 
It's time. God's salvation is definite. It's definite. It never, ever falls short. He is faithful. Maybe today is your day to trust him. Let me pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord.